This episode of the Organic BC podcast was funded by the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food. Hello, this is the Organic BC podcast and I'm Jordan Marr. Our guest interviewer for this episode is Molly Thurston. Every time I produce a season of this podcast, I go knocking on Molly's door to see if she's up for recording another episode focused on soil health or tree and vine management. Many of you know Molly. She's an organic orchardist, a tree fruit consultant, and is a past director of Organic BC's accreditation board, to name just a few of her many contributions to horticulture in British Columbia. This time around, Molly wanted to cover the topic of parasitic nematodes, and she knew exactly who she wanted to approach to enlighten us on the subject. So my name is Tom Forge. I'm a research scientist uh, at the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Research Centre in Summerland. And the official title of my position is Applied Soil Ecology or Research Soil Ecology. But my background is actually in plant pathology with a specialization on soil-borne plant pathogens and, and parasites. And so I've worked around nematology for through most of my career. So I'm interested in basic nematology, host parasite interactions on tree fruit crops and grapes and integrated root health management for tree fruit crops. So I'm interested in how abiotic conditions in the soil and those sorts of things also conspire along with nematodes to you know, interact with nematodes to basically result in a very thrifty, well-growing tree or a very poor-growing tree. <laughs> So, coming right up, Molly's conversation with Tom Forge of the Summerland Research and Development Centre. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you in a bit. Thank you, Tom. I'm so pleased that you're joining me today for this uh, Organic BC podcast interview. And uh, why I really wanted to have you on our podcast this year was because there's always lots of questions about nematodes. And probably like ranging from the good to the bad to the ugly. And so you you particularly yep. mentioned uh, your work in plant parasitic nematodes. Would you just give us a, a quick and dirty definition of, of what plant parasitic nematodes are and who are the key players when we're talking about mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Well, if you'd like, I can start by maybe saying what uh, what nematodes aren't plant parasites, and then we'll go into plant parasites. That and sounds great. So <laughs> Yeah, so it's a typical handful of orchard soil or vineyard soil or from a raspberry field, for example, a typical handful of soil contains, you know, on the order of 500 nematodes. And, uh, but, you know, if it's a healthy soil, uh, the vast majority of those are going to be kind of not necessarily evenly distributed, but a good representation of uh, plant or sorry of uh, bacterial feeding nematodes, uh, fungal feeding nematodes. There are nematodes that are what we call omnivorous. They're known to feed on a bunch of different things like fungal hyphae and root hairs and detritus. Uh, then there are also predaceous nematodes. These are nematodes that feed on other nematodes and small invertebrates in the soil. And then finally there are the plant parasites. And so, as I was saying, out of, you know, on an average of 500 nematodes per uh, handful of soil, you know, 100 cc uh, of soil or 100 milliliters of soil, um, in a healthy soil, you know, maybe only 20 or 50 of those nematodes are going to be plant parasites. But sometimes we see uh, in, uh, in raspberry soils or orchard soils, what have you, that upwards of half of the total nematodes will be plant parasites of one form or another. And so there are those different groups of nematodes that I was mentioning. Uh, and each one of those groups might be represented by three or four different species, maybe even four or five different species, uh, genera and species within that sample. So breaking it down to the plant parasites. So the plant parasites are distinct from all the others in that they have a piercing sucking mouth part. You know, so these are microscopic worms, but they also have within them a kind of a hypodermic syringe type of mouth part. So think in terms of like an aphid or, or something like that, that you can see with your eyes or a mosquito <laughs> is another good example. So at a microscopic scale, uh, these little microscopic worms have these piercing sucking mouth parts. And, and that's what sets the plant parasites apart. And so they use that stylet in many different ways. So within the plant parasites, there are actually most of them are what we call ectoparasites. 
And so they, they have a relatively long stylet and they will, just like a mosquito or an aphid, they'll puncture the epidermal cells of the root and they'll stick their stylet in down a couple cell layers into the root, into the root tissue, and they'll slurp up the contents of those cells, just like uh, sticking your uh, uh, straw into a, an orange <laughs> and, and, and slurping up the juices. So that's kind of their modus operandi. Then there's, there are endoparasitic nematodes as well. They actually use their stylet almost like a battering ram or to puncture the cells. And uh, that combined with uh, giving off some enzymes through their stylet, they dissolve and puncture the root cells and they will actually gain entry into the roots. And then they'll go, so there are migratory endoparasites that basically go from cell to cell. They're within the root, but they sort of move from cell to cell, feeding, and they'll crawl into that cell and they'll use that cell as a vantage point to stick their stylet into the next cell and, and et cetera. And uh, one of the main groups of nematodes or species of nematodes of this type is called the lesion nematode and Pratolinchus penetrans is the species that is the best representative of this group for horticultural crops and and this is most growers in British Columbia for example would be well acquainted with this nematode because it is the one that is the most commonly encountered issue on tree fruits and raspberries and, and, and crops like that. So that's a migratory endoparasitic nematode. So it moves around within the roots uh, as it goes from cell to cell within the roots. And in so doing, it's damaging the roots. So it creates wounds uh, that then allow for opportunistic fungi and bacterial infections to occur. So they're kind of a double whammy. They have their own feeding uh, activity that is harmful to the roots, but then they also, the wounds that they make help to encourage uh, further infection. Uh, then finally, there are what are called sedentary endoparasites. And so these ones will use their stylet, like the lesion nematode, to gain entry into the root. They'll sort of use it, you know, they'll, they'll uh, spit out little bits of, of uh, cell wall degrading enzyme, but also at the same time, they'll use their stylet to puncture through the cell walls. And, but they, what they do is they go right into the, to the edge of the vascular tissue in the root, and they set up a permanent feeding site. And there they molt and kind of continue development, but sort of change shape, just like some insects undergo metamorphosis. And so they'll go from a worm-shaped juvenile as they grow, as they sit there and feed, uh, they'll go from a worm-shaped juvenile to this kind of pear-shaped uh, <laughs> giant, uh, it's, it's almost visible with the naked eye, uh, nematode, but it's, it's, it's kind of still immersed within the root. And it causes the plant as it sets up this permanent feeding site, it causes the plant to start shunting nutrients to it. And so uh, it's, it's like an energetic drain on, on the plant as, as the plant starts to shunt nutrients to feed this nematode as it's growing, then eventually it just becomes a giant egg-laying machine. And so a good example of these ones are the root knot nematodes. And so the, the swelling that they cause causes little knots uh, that are visible on the roots, little knots or nodules. And, uh, and these are, uh, if you have a lot of nematodes invade, a lot of root knot nematodes invading a root system, you get a lot of these knots and a very dysfunctional root system because the plant uh, is trying to shunt nutrients down to feed these nematodes, but then also the, the knots themselves kind of disrupt the vascular uh, uh, tissue of the root and so kind of affect the ability of the root to take up nutrients and, and water and those sorts of things. So that nematode is actually very important in vegetable production. Uh, and we don't encounter it a lot with the, at least in Canada, the species that we have in Canada, we don't encounter it much with the perennial fruit crops that are so important in BC, but the uh, vegetable crops can be seriously affected by it. And in particular, the tuberous ones, such as carrots or parsnips, those sorts of things, because the nematode also causes disfiguring of, of, the, of, of the tubers. So in addition to reducing yields and overall growth and yield, uh, it causes disfiguring. So you have downgraded uh, classes of, of carrots or uh, uh, parsnips. And so, Tom, would that kind of disfiguring, for example, in a carrot look like forked carrots or, you know, sort of sometimes we see these really multi-legged uh, root crops come out of the ground. 
Is that a, a symptom of a root knot nematode? Yes. Uh, yes. So if you have lots of root knot nematodes in the soil as, as the carrots very start, very initially start to develop, it'll, uh, and, and they start to invade, they, they will cause that forking to start to occur. Um, but then in addition, you will get the nodules starting to form on some of the little side feeder roots on those carrots. And so sometimes as the carrot grows, so it'll be forked and maybe slightly bent because as it starts to grow, like if, if, the, if the nematode uh, invades right at the growing tip, then it causes it to sort of grow sideways. And so that tuber, or sorry, the, the carrot tap root, you know, will be forked and it'll grow more crooked and those sorts of things. And then what you will also see is on the finer roots that still kind of run off the end or in the sides of the carrot, you will see the nodules and knots on those, but uh, you don't really see the, not, the knots on the tuber part of the carrot, you know, the fleshy part of the carrot mm -hmm. as it sort of grows around them and, and, and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's exactly uh, the kind of damage it, it causes. So it sounds like with the root knot nematode, which you described, it's the sedentary endoparasitic nematode, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. is really has highly visible symptoms. When we go back to the Pratolanchus penetrans, what kind of symptoms, or would you know, would a would a grower see potentially, yeah. you know, what kind of wound would we maybe be looking at if we're trying to assess whether or not we've got damage in the field? Right, right. That's a really good question, and and that's one of the difficulties in working with these nematodes. So, um, so if if a grower has a really good eye and is accustomed to looking at roots and knows what healthy roots look like, truly <laughs> healthy roots, and then you have some roots that you've dug up from a nematode infested uh, part of a field, and you hold them side by side, you can tell the difference. The ones from the nematode infested soil will be a lot more sort of blackened. If you look at them really carefully, you will see lesions. And these are what, the, what these are, like the equivalent of scabs, if you will. They're section pieces of white, what should be nice white fleshy new roots, but you'll see that they'll have blackened or browned brown spots on them. And then in certain cases, like the root tips may be just completely black and, and, and portions uh, aside from the root tip will be completely blackened as as the necrosis caused by the lesions starts to get worse and worse and worse. So in the early stages of the, well, in the early part of the season, but also in the early stages of infestation, like over the 10-year cycle of a cropping, um, as the population grows, you the, the intensity of that uh, those symptoms will get worse. But sometimes, you know, if you're just digging up roots from a nematode infested site, you know, you will still see a few white roots, a nice fine white root and those sorts of things, because you'll get a flush of root growth every now and then. It'll maybe go faster than the nematodes. It takes the nematodes to catch up. Um, and so it's, you know, unless you kind of have, it, it's it's a qualitative thing and and unless you have truly healthy roots right there next to you sometimes it's uh, unless you're kind of trained at looking at it it's not really obvious but but you you will see and the other part of what I was getting at is that there are lots of other things that can cause uh, just not happy looking roots <laughs> for sure well and I yeah. can imagine exactly you you mentioned a lot of your research is looking at abiotic factors that affect plant growth and yeah. I'm sure there's many yeah. of those that also affect the way that roots form and develop as well so yeah. what would be yeah. some of those common other factors that you might use you know to to try to rule out whether or not you might be dealing with a nematode issue yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So you have unthrifty trees, and you dig up the roots, and you see that they are blackened, maybe a little crumbly, um, and and or at least more browner than than you would expect. And you see like little bits of lesions, and so that's certainly um, uh, you know consistent with nematodes. But uh, first and foremost, you need to actually test for the nematodes to say that it is. And other things that can happen. Well, there are other soil-borne fungi uh, in the soil, like the cylindrocarpin species. We we now call them uh, uh, Ilionectria. Um, our our cylindrocarpin species are very common root rot pathogens on 
uh, apple trees and raspberries and, and things like that. Uh, there are pythiums, uh, there are fusariums, uh, you know, it, there's a quite a wide range of <laughs> soil-borne fungi that also infect roots. And they can cause similar symptoms by themselves, uh, but very often they are in conjunction with the lesion nematodes. And uh, so that's why you do need to test for the presence of the nematodes first and foremost to confirm the nematodes are part of what's happening there. Uh, and it, it does happen sometimes. You have very ugly looking roots and, uh, and you test for nematodes and there aren't any nematodes. And so then it's like, okay, it's probably being caused by slindercarpin or fusarium or something like that. So to a plant disease diagnostician, that's a, a step forward. To a grower, you're still kind of floundering in the dark because, <laughs> you know, I mean, at least you can rule out uh, you know, if you have a nematode control product that you might be able to use, you can rule out using it to try to correct the, the problem uh, at that point. So uh, can you yeah. walk me through, Tom, with, um, you know, as a grower who might be in this situation, I've had a look at my root system. Um, you know, maybe I'm looking at trees that just, they're not putting on a whole lot of growth up top. The leaves might not be looking particularly healthy green. Are those some um, symptoms, I guess, that I might be visually seeing before even going into the soil? Um, mm -hmm. what, what other sort of factors might um, draw a grower to want to do more testing and what kind of testing is available? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> good question. Um, so yeah, typically what we see above ground is uneven, like in a newly planted, let's just say hypothetically a two acre block or a five acre block. And if it's relatively young, what you'll see is uneven growth uh, early on. And because uh, these nematodes usually exist in patches. Um, and so an entire field may, may be infested in other words, like every sample you take from the field, you might get nematodes, but they'll differ in their abundance for a variety of reasons. And so you will see sort of a patchiness to the growth habit of the, of the trees. And that's usually a pretty good indication. And especially pay attention to whether that patchiness does not necessarily correspond with, say, soil, some variation in soil texture or moisture or something like that, then that's usually a pretty good giveaway that there's something biotic uh, in the soil that, that's causing it. So that's basically, so the above ground symptoms are basically just poor growth. So, you know, because the, the, the effect of the nematodes at the level of the root is multifold. They're, they're, reducing the functionality of the root system, which then makes it a little bit harder for the tree to get up, to get moisture under, during periods of, of moisture stress, you know, when it's warm and windy out, for example, and high evapotranspirational demand on the trees. Um, it makes it harder for them to take up adequate nutrients. And so it's never, the effects of these nematodes is never like a, just a, a classic you know, uh, lethal pathogen. <laughs> uh, it's what it is. It's just it's a chronic drain on the tree's ability to get what it needs. And so it's kind of like imagine as a person, if you were uh, chronically were never quite able to get as much uh, food and water uh, as you really need. <laughs> and so you might limp along and do fine. You you're still you're not going to die but you're not going to prosper uh, as, as well as, as, as others. So, yeah, so the symptoms are really nondescript. And it's really, you know, at the level from year to year uh, in, in a perennial crop, it's just progressive, progressively poor growth. And if it's kind of patchy in that respect. So, yeah, so then you, so you start to suspect um, that that might be uh part of the issue. It's not clearly related to irrigation line, you know, a particular set of irrigation lines or something like that. So then you dig, do some digging. You see that the roots are, you know, there might be fine roots there, but they're kind of uh, blackened um, and more so than you normally expect to see. Uh, so that's the next step. Uh, so then you want to take a sample and have it analyzed for nematodes. And this is where it's a little tricky because in the past in British Columbia, um, the uh, Provincial Plant Health Lab in Abbotsford uh, used to offer 
nematode diagnostic services uh, to all growers uh, in, in, in the province. And so you could, you could take a soil sample, and I can talk later about how to do that, but you can take a soil sample and send it to them, then they would tell you if you have lesion nematodes or root knot nematodes or which kind of nematodes you have and how many are there. And so it was really an, an important service. And once upon a time, uh, BC tree fruit staff were also available who could, who, you know, who worked out of a lab and could uh, do those analyses, at least for people in the tree fruit industry and to a limited extent, the grape industry in the interior. Um, however, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we've lost some of that expertise, the people who used to do those analyses. And right now we're in a bit of limbo. And so the next best lab to send uh, material to is actually in Ontario <laughs> uh, in terms of commercial labs who can do this on a fee-for-service basis. So there's both, there's ANL labs in London, Ontario. There's also um, uh, uh, Guelph University uh, offers uh, nematode diagnostic services. And those are really the, the two <laughs> only <laughs> opportunities right now. Uh, uh, but I have colleagues uh, in the BC ministry uh, and at Kwantlen University, who I'm working with them. We have a project. Uh, they're primarily leading it on developing uh, quantitative PCR protocols for the main species of interest in British Columbia that then the plant health lab can use to uh, resume their nematode testing uh, services. So we're hoping this is going to come to fruition here fairly soon and they can get back on track on offering those services. So stay tuned on that. Well, thanks for that, Tom. That does give us some hope for the future because certainly it sounds like we probably can't rely just on the visual symptoms in order to be able no. to effectively um, yeah. diagnose yeah. what's there in happening That's in the right. soil. Yeah, yeah and when you, when you think about, uh, you know, you'd mentioned in this handful of soil, you know, you may have 500 nematodes and what is the tipping point, for example, for tree fruit? Like, um, mm -hmm. a, you know, a, a small presence is okay or, you know, when, yeah. when does that tip over to actually being a real issue? Yeah, uh, very good question because well over 90% of all the orchards <laughs> that we've ever sampled as part of survey studies have lesion nematodes in them. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and it's important too. We're coming. We're just. We're still trying to learn a little bit more about this. But there are different species of lesion nematodes, um, and so in addition to Pratolinchus penetrans, which I mentioned before, there we do know that there's another species called Pratolinchus neglectus that commonly co-occurs with Pratolinchus penetrans, and it, typical diagnostic procedures they do not do not necessarily distinguish them. And we suspect, we still need to confirm this in our own research lab, but we suspect that Pratolinchus neglectus is not a damaging to apple. Oh, okay. But at this point in time, it's best to assume, you know, when, when you're looking at some a diagnostic report or something like that, to assume it's penetrans. Because um, we do know it's penetrans is everywhere, just sometimes for particular fields, um, you know, it could be that maybe two thirds of the population that is being counted is is this neglectus species. Anyway, um, so for Pratolinchus penetrans, which has been studied most heavily in terms of its effect on apple trees, from a variety of perspectives, like just cumulative experience in uh, looking at orchards of varying with different population densities, but also from greenhouse experiments with seedlings, um, it looks like around 50 per 100 mil soil sample uh, is kind of, it's not a hard, you know, thresh, damage threshold population, but it's a, let's call it a reference point. Above 50, um, you know, you can start to get concerned or want to pay more attention to those numbers. Below 50, if you are, you know, if you've tested your orchard a couple times and each time it's come back with, numbers like 20 or something like that, uh, you're, you're doing pretty good. And I would say, you know, I would counsel someone to basically not worry about it, uh, about nematodes. And if you still have issues, you know, to start looking for other, you know, other possible causes as the primary uh, cause. And, um, and, and, and you might just keep an eye on it, maybe, you know, four years down the road, test again, something like that to make sure 
that uh, that they're staying low. And uh, so, yeah, so below 50, you know, just kind of like take note, um, but uh, carry on looking for other causes. Over 50, if it's just a little bit over 50, keep an eye on it. Um, if we're, if you're getting, you know, with multiple samplings, you're, you're getting over 100, uh, then that's a pretty, it's pretty likely that the nematodes are, you know, a primary driver of, of poor growth uh, in, in that sort of circumstance. Okay. No, that's helpful to understand, you know, um, what that population might look like that we would need to be concerned about should we get a yep. report back. With, um, yep. when, when you mentioned perhaps, you know, with a low population, we could come back and test in a few years. Um, mm -hmm. That raises the question of, you know, how does the population of nematodes grow or how do they reproduce um, mm -hmm. over time? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Uh, in fact, often, like during replant, I mean, during replant management, often we're doing things that do to uh, intentionally reduce their populations. Uh, but even if not uh, taking on intentional things, such as fumigating or what have you, just the, the process of take, pulling trees out, uh, prepping the soil, tilling it, and those sorts of things, you will get a, a reduction in, in, the, in the populations before replanting maybe not as, as far as with fumigation or something. So, so very often at the beginning of a planting, uh, the populations might seem relatively low. And what they do, and so they start to build up as the root systems grow, and superimposed on that is an annual cycle. And so lesion nematode populations, for the most part, in irrigated production systems in BC, start relatively low in the spring and they increase through the summer and often sort of plateau or stall in the hot part of the summer. They don't just go away or anything like that. Uh, but then the highest population densities usually are observed around October, early November, that sort of time frame, September and in, in, into early November. And, uh, and we've seen this with the lesion nematodes, as, as well as ring nematodes, which I can talk about later on uh, tree fruits and on, on cherry trees and, and, and grapes. And uh, so, so, that, so they increase within the season, but then there's always a little bit of winter die off. And in the course of a over 10 years or 20 years, more often than not, the increase, the, the decrease during the winter is not as great as the increase during the summer. So you sort of get a gradual buildup through time, like over the span of a decade, you get a gradual buildup through time. But superimposed on that is this annual cycle that's important to, to keep track of. For sure. So with that annual cycle, the seasonal spring increase and then these really high populations potentially in the Hey everyone, I'm cutting in ever so quickly to tell you that it's mid-February 2023, and over the next month, Organic BC is hosting a few events that some of you may be interested in. There are a few one-day in-person gatherings around the province, as well as a couple of online seminars, including a discussion on the principles of rotational grazing coming up fast on February 23rd. You can find out more about these events at organicbc.org events. Okay, back to Molly and Tom. For sure. So with that annual cycle, the seasonal spring increase and then these really high populations potentially in the fall, for an organic uh, tree fruit grower who wants to address the issue of nematodes in the field, what options exist? Oh, <laughs> million dollar question for organic growers. In an existing planting, um, we don't have what I would call really real good options. On, on what to do. With that said, um, we do know that maintaining soil health as high a level of you know, organic matter inputs and overall biological activity in the tree row that you can, um, it does seem, it doesn't, it's not a full suppression of the populations like you'd expect from a chemical control, but let's just say it keeps them in check. And so we do know that that can be very beneficial 
in nematode infested soil. And, and in part, it might just simply be that it, it doesn't function so much as to reduce the nematodes as to just make everything as optimal as possible for, uh, for root growth to enable them to prosper despite the nematodes. And uh, so, so it's very rare in a really healthy soil, we very rarely see very high population densities. So an organic grower can, so, so I would, for an organic grower, I wouldn't look at it as, you know, you have nematodes, um, what, do you, what can you do to correct it? It's more like, <laughs> more than likely, you're not gonna have a major nematode problem. Um, and, but what can you do to make sure it doesn't get any worse? And that's probably gonna be consistent with some of your uh, goals on soil health management anyway. So that's for an existing planting. Um, and there are, incidentally, there are organic nematicides uh, available. And I, I should have looked this up before this presentation. I'm not sure what the registration status on those products is in Canada currently, but I do know that you know globally there are a number of, of uh, such uh, uh, approaches available. And hit or miss, like just my uh, basic knowledge from talking with colleagues at conferences and, and, and things like that, you know, they're definitely not as effective as the non-organic uh, nematicides that have been developed. But uh, I do know that people have observed uh, benefits with their use. Uh, and uh, uh, separately, if, if need be, I, I could look up some of the names of some of these uh, for you and, and provide you some background. So, so that's kind of the situation there. Now, when it comes to replanting, and so this back to the long-term population dynamics, this is why nematodes are most often a concern at replanting. And that's because over the long-term, uh, you know, course, you know, 25 years of growing an orchard crop, usually that's when at the end of that crop, that's when the population densities are generally kind of at their highest. And because you've got these big old trees, uh, lots of roots, the nematodes have been reproducing and they get knocked back every winter, but by and large, they're just sort of gradually increasing in the site as a whole. And it's when those, and, and as I was saying before, you know, the nematodes, they're affecting those older trees. They're kind of chronic drains on, on their ability to grow and to be very vigorous, but they're not lethal or anything like that. But then if you take that, if you took that soil when you're replanting and you didn't do anything to try to, that might encourage uh, die off of the nematodes and you planted a seedling right in that soil, that's when the nematodes are at their worst in terms of their impact on those trees. Because those little seed, those little trees that you've planted on those little rootstocks are just trying to push out their very first flush of root growth, but they're being confronted with population densities that had existed on these big old trees. And, and that's when we see the most dramatic effect of nematodes is in a replant situation. And that replant situation is further compounded by a similar thing is happening with the, the fungal pathogens that I mentioned before. So that's why we talk about the replant disease complex uh, uh, so often. So there are lots of things that organic growers can do besides fumigating, which conventional growers can, can do to combat uh, uh, replant disease complex and nematodes specifically. So brassica green manure cover crops, if they're managed to optimize the biofumigant effect, can be effective as, as a practice before replanting. Simply having a, a brown fallow uh, can be quite effective for reducing the lesion nematode populations. So what I mean by brown fallow is, and unfortunately this is not compatible with, you know, generally good soil husbandry or soil health management, but to keep a piece of land, to keep the, because these nematodes, especially lesion nematodes, unfortunately weed hosts, weeds are often very good hosts for them. So if you have a weedy fallow, you'll have the nematodes reproducing on the weeds during the fallow period. But if you can keep that fallow as that fallowed area as clean of weeds and perhaps even irrigated to some extent to keep the organisms active, the nematode populations will die off quite a bit during that summer. 
And so then when you come in to plant, you could do a fall planting or, or spring of the next year, you're going to have nematode populations that have been suppressed almost as well as in fumigated soil. So, so that's another one. So brassica or crucifer green manure cover crops. So it's not enough to just grow the cover crops, but you have to optimize that biofumigant effect. Can you talk um, about that a little bit, Tom? Just, you know, what yeah. is optimizing it? Because I think, you know, we mm -hmm. we often think, oh, you know, you just grow, grow the cover crop, let it die off yeah. in the fall, and we'll be good to go. But I think you're talking yeah. about something very different here. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, thank you for prompting me to clarify on that. So, so these uh, cover crops, uh, they have compounds in the in the leaf tissue called glucosinolates that when they are chopped, when the leaf tissue is macerated, it's green living leaf tissue. When it's macerated, the enzyme gets released and it comes in, or uh, the compound gets released and it comes in contact with enzymes that are in the soil, but also in the leaf itself called myrosinase that cause it to break down into a class of compounds called isothiocyanates. And these are the compounds, incidentally, when you eat wasabi, <laughs> that, that, that hot, you know, that, that stuff that gets right in your nose. This is the same class of compounds. And, and this, this is also, in fact, some of the chemical fumigants are actually the same class of compounds, but, you know, derived from a different perspective, uh, from different origin. And so these, these isothiocyanates, then are released and when that chopped green tissue is is mixed into the soil they're released into the soil environment and then they have biofumigant effects on the nematodes it is very different from applying a chemical fumigant even if it is an isothiocyanate based one because you also are adding all sorts of organic matter as well so while you're knocking your provide your providing enough isothiocyanates to kind of have this knockback effect on the nematode populations, you very quickly also get massive growth or blooms of, of bacterial growth and, and other microbes and bacterial feeding nematodes and all these sorts of things in green manure, uh, uh, green manure soils. Um, so, so back to the, the broader question of them. So these, these cover crops, they are commonly grown just as general cover crops where so you'd plant it grow it up and just let it mature and and then till it in or something like that but if you're going for nematode management or to try to optimize the biofumigant effect as i was saying you plant the cover crop you fertilize it and water it irrigate it and and do whatever you can to minimize weed growth in it and try to get as thick as you know as luscious of a crop as you can then right as it comes to flowering which is kind of optimal biomass that's when you flail mow rapidly rototill it in and if you can pack it so these are all the steps that one must take to optimize that biofumigant effect and part of the reason i'm making a big deal of this is because lesion nematodes will actually reproduce on the roots of those cover crops while they're growing not to maybe to the extent as they do on a raspberry plant or on a fruit tree or something like that, but they do, they reproduce. So the cover crop, if you don't incorporate that green manure and get that biofumigant effect, um, you're actually working against yourself by just growing the cover crop. <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm really oh. glad you went through those steps in detail, Tom, because yeah, you, you really identified a risk there that not... Yeah doing it properly could actually enhance the, That's the right. issue that yeah. we don't really want to have. So Yeah, yeah. So I'm very glad you, you asked me <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's very important. Um, uh, and then another area, going back to the general question of, of organic uh, management options that can, uh, and, and, and with all organic management, you know, often there are multiple outcomes or m multiple benefits that can come from any one of these. So again, the, the uh, brassica or crucifer green manure, uh, you know, it has, it does have a biocidal effect, but it's not to the same extent as chemical fumigants. And you're just, you're at the same time, you're just like loading the soil with really lots of great organic matter to promote uh, regrowth of, of, uh, of beneficial organisms. And there's some speculation that 
uh, green manure biofumigation, as we're discussing, may result in longer term suppression of pest populations than a chemical fumigant because in addition to having this initial kind of die-off effect, you're, you're allowing, you're promoting this rapid regrowth of, of microbes and that you're probably enhancing uh, some uh, natural antagonists of, of the plant parasitic nematodes to kind of help keep the populations in check thereafter. So I just want to make that point about it. But then also uh, incorporation of high quality compost also uh, in, into the, the planting zone uh, can be very effective along these very same lines. It doesn't knock the nematodes back. And, and you're kind of hoping that some of your earlier crop prep things are gonna knock the knock populations down a little bit anyway, but it, and we've, we've demonstrated this and a graduate student I had a number of years ago named Tristan Watson did a lot of work on this but so we demonstrate that if you incorporate a high, you know, quite a bit of a high quality compost, you get a little bit of immediate suppression. But what happens is that over the span of like three, four, five years, the nematode population just kind of stay where they are. Whereas in the fumigated plots that we had as, as a check with, with in those experiments uh, or in the non-treated plots, the populations go up. So by you know, we're with the compost amendment, we're not adding a something to knock the nematode populations down, but what we're doing is we're feeding the soil to enhance populations of antagonists of the plant parasitic nematodes. And that has longer lasting uh, benefits than, uh, than a, say, a simple chemical fumigation or something like that. So, yeah, so that's been a major theme of our research over a number of years, though, is, is kind of uh, using compost amendments in a replant management perspective. Um, Absolutely. And, Tom, can I yeah. get you to maybe speak a little bit about vineyards? You'd mentioned the mm -hmm. ring, ring nematode um, mm -hmm. and in particular its effects on cherry and grape. Uh, what are those effects and why would, for example, a vineyard owner or operator be interested in that particular nematode? Yeah, so, um, and, and this has been a... I wouldn't call it a discovery, but a, a new area of awakening uh, for us is the role of these ring nematodes. Um, so going back a number of years when the uh, grape industry really took off, um, in those days, we didn't pay much attention to ring nematodes. Um, and, and in general, a lot of the vineyard um, sites uh, weren't suspected of having nematode issues much at all. But um, in recent years, we've come to realize that a really high proportion of vineyards, as well as cherry orchards, have this nematode called the ring nematode, and some of them at very high population densities. And I suspect what happened was, uh, as we're saying, uh, and, and you know, the cherry industry grew rapidly over the last 30 years as well. And so when those industries start, when the acreage of cherry and, and grape really started to take off 30 years ago and started to ramp up at that time we didn't suspect any nematode issues and then we just kind of like forgot about them <laughs> for two decades and didn't pay much attention um and uh, uh and then now here we are and we're, we've kind of kind of heading backwards but what's you know grapes have have been known to be susceptible to nematodes for a long time in other growing regions in mediterranean growing regions in california southern europe uh, those sorts of places uh, a, a significant number of nematode species have long been recognized as being important on grape but we i think you know again being a newer industry and a little bit farther north uh, we uh, 30 years ago just kind of like mm, yeah we don't have those nematodes so not much of an issue so um, yeah, so this has been uh, kind of an awakening and we're still trying to get better data on uh, the actual impacts of these nematodes on grape and cherry, but they're definitely very widespread now. I don't think they were before. Uh, the, the data, what survey data exists from previous nematologists indicates that they weren't very uh, frequently uh, found before, but they are uh, quite widespread now. and. These, these nematodes are ectoparasites and uh, 
on tree fruits on other prunus crops, such as peaches and plums, a lot of really elegant experimental work in what we call uh, field microplots has been done in California and uh, Georgia, uh, where a lot of peaches are grown. And it's really clear, it's a classic plant pathology uh, story of a disease complex where the nematodes, the presence of these ring nematodes are not, they're not really all that damaging to the tree in terms of their direct effect on root growth. They don't cause a lot of necrosis like the lesion nematodes, as I was indicating, they're ectoparasites and they stick their stylet into the root and they just kind of sit there and suck up the, the juices, but they don't cause a lot of like physical damage, puncturing of root and those sorts of things. So they're not having that same kind of effect as lesion nematodes, but they are an energetic drain on the tree as they're down there sucking away uh, on those roots. And one of the interesting things that they do is that they predispose the tree to, uh, to winter injury and to pseudomonas canker, but also to fungal canker diseases such as Cytospora. So this has been really well demonstrated in other growing regions on peach and plum. So here we are in BC, we have this elite sweet cherry uh, growing uh, region that, that is making, you know, it's economically, it's super important for our region and everything and our acreage is grown. And, but now we have this nematode. We, we know that we have a number of orchards with really high numbers of them. And we also have lots of canker disease issues in some of these same orchards uh, where we're seeing it. So we have good reason to uh, hypothesize that we're seeing a similar kind of disease complex happening in relation to ring nematodes where um, uh, in, in sweet cherry. But we've never been able to this to date. No one has demonstrated experimentally, you know, like they did with peach and plum before that this interaction is happening. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do at the research center, but it's, these are very difficult experiments uh, to do, but, but we're hoping that we can confirm this, this, this connection between the abundance of the uh, ring nematodes and the, pre and the frequency of, uh, of canker disease issues. But we have, from other prunus species, we have good reason to believe that's what's happening. Um, and then on grape, there was a lot of really interesting work, uh, most of it out of uh, ring nematodes have been known to be parasites of, of grape for a long time. Uh, but in most major growing regions, such as California, there are other nematode species that are sort of higher priority. And so ring nematode has always been carried along as, you know, considered, yeah, it's, it's parasitizing the grape, but people haven't really you know, like in California and places, they haven't really focused on studying its, its effect on, on, on grape until um, the early 1990s. And a bunch of work got initiated in, in Western Oregon, where, and ironically, I was a postdoc at, at, there at that time, and you know, I was involved in some of these early studies, where some early survey work indicated, kind of like we just did in, in British Columbia, some early survey work in the Willamette Valley indicated that this nematode is way more widespread than had ever been originally considered. And so the scientist there, the USDA scientist, Jack Pinkerton, did a series of microplot studies and, and showed very conclusively that this nematode was have, you know, could have a very significant effect on early growth of, of grapevines. So, and then they went on and did some studies on, on how different rootstocks respond to it and those sorts of things. So, so before finding it in BC uh, vineyards more frequently, we already knew, you know, from background that it was, that this nematode is likely to be having an effect on, on grape. It's hard to quantify at this point, you know, to extrapolate from the Oregon studies and to say, you know, a vineyard on SO4 rootstock with 800 ring nematodes per 100 cc of soil, um, you know, it's hard for it for someone like me to say, you know, you're gonna have a 30% reduction in yield, um, you know, to quantify it like that, but we're certain that it's having an impact. And, and so one of the additional things we're starting to look at, again, thinking of how this nematode works on tree fruits uh, in terms of predisposition to other diseases, other pathogens, uh, I'm working with uh, 
Dr. Jose Urbis Torres, who's a specialist in trunk diseases, which are recognized as a major issue in BC vineyards. And so we're attempting to determine if the presence of, of ring nematodes might be part of the underlying reason why you might see a little bit more trunk disease in some areas than in, than in others to see if they're somehow connected as a general stressor to help enable that uh, uh, those uh, broader disease complexes to occur. So so that's kind of where we are in our in terms of our learning process about these these ring nematodes. Well, that's great. Thanks so much, Tom. I mean, we have covered a huge amount of ground talking about nematodes for the last 45 minutes or so. And I really appreciate uh, your enthusiasm. And I have to ask you, what lights you up most about the career you've had with soil health and nematology? Oh, boy, what lights me up the, the most? <laughs> Honestly, I like digging up root systems and looking at them. <laughs> that, that's a good answer. And because, because it just, it's, I'm forever it's forever this process of, uh, you know, it's a very unstructured process. We think, you know, that scientists like myself are just always, you know, have, have all of our ducks in a row, but it's this every orchard or vineyard I go to and I see some unthrifty vines or trees and that first shovel full and I'm pulling, pulling up those roots and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, I'm imagining what could be happening, but I'm like, hmm. I got to look at this under the microscope <laughs> and, and see. So, so it's like, it's constantly a game of trying to guess what's happening and then doing the lab work to confirm. And, uh, and, and it's an iterative process. And I just, I just like that process. I, I like connecting, looking at things in the lab with what's actually happening out there in, in orchards and vineyards. And I find just conceptually, I find it so interesting, and we're all aware of this now with COVID, but uh, to me, it's always so interesting to learn how very little microscopic things can sometimes rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and so nematodes may not necessarily be the most important of those things. Like there are some fungal pathogens that are way more important, uh, you know, or, or can be more devastating. Uh, but the the nematodes are so under understudied and underrepresented and that i really enjoy being able to try to tease out uh as much as we can about what effects they do have oh that's great well thank you so much tom for spending this hour with us and just sharing your passion and and the amazing body of work that you've done over the many years with um, all different fruit crops and veggie crops and i would hope that uh this will prompt uh, many growers to be looking even further at the root systems and, you know, taking that approach of curiosity that you've just described in order to go a little deeper and dig into the soil and see what's going on. Great. It was my pleasure. All right. That's about it for this episode. I want to thank Molly and Tom for providing us with another great episode of the podcast. And I also want to thank the BC Ministry of Agriculture and Food for providing funding for this episode. And thanks to Matt Eckel for providing our theme music and our transitions. Okay, time to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>